And he was on that beach, I think it was about 27 hours, okay, uh, before the next day somebody saw him and said, are you still alive? And then they shipped him back to England to the hospital. But here we have these two guys. One of them had a bird's eye view of Normandy, of, of D-Day. The other one, sitting, looking at the surf, seeing the troops come in, had kind of a worm's eye view. And here are two football players who participated in the day of days. It's America's game and America's heroes on the field. We thank every single service person in and around and surrounding one of the great rivalries in sports every single year. This is Adesina Koike, and you're listening to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. It's episode number 43 in your ear right now. And first and foremost, I do hope that you are staying safe and that your loved ones uh, are safe as we are still uh, doing our best uh, during this uh, coronavirus pandemic. And our condolences to those uh, who are listening to this podcast who've had friends and family uh, or loved ones uh, pass away uh, due to COVID-19. Our podcast today is about the Army-Navy game. On Saturday, the 121st edition of the Army-Navy game kicks off, and it's one of the games that captures the imagination the world over. Ever since the first time I watched the Army-Navy game, I knew it was special, and More than 30 years after the first time gazing at those gold helmets of Army and Navy, uh, the game still takes on such an importance and has taken on such an importance for over a century. And uh, we decided to bring on someone who has written about the Army-Navy game or aspects uh, of the Army-Navy game cover to cover. Uh, our guest on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast is Randy Roberts. He is a distinguished professor of history at Purdue University. He's a historian. He's an author. Uh, nine years ago, he wrote a book uh, in 2011 called A Team for America, the Army-Navy Game That Rallied a Nation. And in this podcast, we wanted to really encompass and talk about the legacy of the army navy game not just the x's and o's and the wins and the losses but really talk about some of the people uh who played in the game and then later on or very soon after playing in the game served uh our country on the battlefields of war uh including uh people who played in the army navy game that were on Omaha Beach uh, during D-Day in Normandy, France. And uh, our guest, Randy Roberts, has written about it, and he joins us and talks about all of the aspects uh, of some of the great games and great teams uh, of yesteryear in Army and Navy, including the 1944 team uh, that won the first of three consecutive national championships that year and just a fascinating story that you'll get to hear uh in just a few minutes is the 1944 commencement speech at graduation at west point took place on june 6th 1944 d-day itself and our guest randy roberts talked about how that day commencement at West Point, which just so happened to be D-Day as well, uh, really set up this country in terms of helping it heal and helping its morale uh, during World War II. Uh, So we, Mr. Roberts, 
really humanizes a lot of the people on some of those teams uh, and some of those uh, players were overseas in France fighting the war in World War II. They fought in the Korean War. They fought in the Vietnam War as well. And uh, Mr. Roberts has a few anecdotes uh, with some of those people who played on the gridiron and then served our country soon afterwards. Uh, so it's just a fascinating lesson. And for most of the interview, I just had to just sit and listen and just be in awe uh, of the stories and of the people uh, who took part in this game and also served our country. Uh, wartime and also a time of tragedy as well. Uh, November 22nd, 1963, the uh, Kennedy assassination, uh, the Army-Navy game was played uh, just a few days after that. And you'll hear how the first lady, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, was instrumental in making sure that the Army-Navy game was played just a few days after her husband was shot, uh, the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. And I end up asking him at the very end of our conversation, just how this game is viewed and how this game is so important to the American folklore and the standing uh, that this game has, especially for those who might not be aware of the great players and the great teams and the stories um, that we are able and were able uh, to just tell to you uh, as the years have gone by. Uh, Army and Navy uh, have wonderful players, but of course, uh, a lot of younger fans end up gravitating towards the uh Power five schools and uh, really paying attention to that. But uh, please uh, take some time and uh, listen to this podcast and uh, hear about some of the great stories, some of the great teams, some of the great all time teams in the history of college football going back to the 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, also just the way that aspects of the Army Navy game uh, are so influential in football today uh the first uh instant replay uh was displayed during an army navy game uh back in the 1960s so uh, we talk about that it's as well the game's place in the history of american folklore so uh our interview which you'll hear starting in just a couple of seconds now uh is with professor randy roberts he's a historian and a, a distinguished professor of history at Purdue University and his 2011 book, A Team for America, the Army-Navy Game that Rallied a Nation. Again, here is our interview with Randy Roberts talking all things Army-Navy, the Army-Navy Game kicking off on Saturday, the 121st edition of America's Game. The interview will start in just a couple of seconds, and we will see you at the very end of the show. We are again pleased to be joined uh, by Randy Roberts. He is a distinguished professor of history at Purdue University at West Lafayette, Indiana, and is the author of the 2011 book, A Team for America, the Army-Navy Game that Rallied a Nation. First of all, uh, Mr. Roberts, thank you so very much uh, for joining us here today and First and foremost, uh, how has everything been the past uh, few months out uh, teaching in uh, uh, West Lafayette? And hopefully you've been well and you've been staying safe over uh, the past nine months or so. 
Well, thank you for, for asking, Addy. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm well. I'm doing fine. I'm missing my students a little bit. We, I've taught virtually uh, the last semester, so I... I'll be anxious to get back in the classroom. That's for sure. Yes, uh, we. Uh, so many of us are anxious to get back to every day and uh, I guess normal lives or as close to normal uh, as it was uh, before the pandemic. So I definitely uh, echo those same sentiments uh, with you. And uh, you have specialized in uh, documenting some of the seminal figures and teams and events in sports and uh, a number of times you've done that in the backdrop of war um, and other big moments uh, across uh, the country going on uh, that uh, usually overshadows uh, just the game itself um, before anything else uh I mentioned that you wrote uh, uh, the book on uh, the Army-Navy game, at least the 44 Army-Navy game, A Team for America. Uh, before you uh, ended up going down this uh, journey of studying history and studying the Army-Navy game and other great figures uh, of the 20th century in sports, um, what first drew you uh, to the pageantry that was the Army-Navy game, either a first memory of the Army-Navy game uh, or just something that first hooked you into wanting to know more about one of the uh, great games uh, in American sport? Well... I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, in central Pennsylvania, so not that far from Philadelphia. And, of course, the, the game was oftentimes, it's been held in Philadelphia more than any other place. And, you know, I, my father and the fathers of my friends were all service veterans. They had either been in the Army or the Navy. And so we all rooted for whoever our father was in, Whatever branch he was in, we tended to root for those games. So I go back that I can, I can remember the Bellino when Bellino played. I can remember certainly when Roger Staubach played at uh, for Navy. And to me, it's it's always been special. It's usually about the – it's always the premier game that's that weekend. Usually it's the weekend after Thanksgiving. You know, we're starting to move into winter, and sometimes the game has a certain chill to it. And, and there's in, in the pageantry around it. And when the game is over, when the, when the cadets and the midshipmen come together in the center of the field and, you know, congratulate each other, you realize, you know, these are the people who are defending America. And these are the people that are playing the game. But when the game's over, when they're, and they're upperclassmen, they're seniors and they're graduating, that they're going to go oftentimes in harm's way. And so it, it takes on what an added poignancy i believe uh this game this saturday uh the latest installment of the army navy game is the first to be played uh at an academy uh since 1943 of course uh the pandemic uh being the main reason uh that that has been the case now 1943 of course takes us into the middle uh of world war ii um and you wrote about uh, the well, the nineteen forty four team, uh, the team that ended up winning the first of three consecutive uh, national championships, and you titled uh, the subtitle of your book was the Army Navy game uh, that rallied a nation. I am sure that in that time, as well as other times where events in the world have overshadowed sport, uh, 
9-11, uh, uh, the JFK assassination, I'm sure there was some pushback as to whether this game should be played or should have been played or these games, given uh, 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 the time that we were in, in war in the 40s. Why, uh, during your research into this book, did you mention in the subtitle a team or the game, the 1944 game, Rally the Nation. Uh, take me to that moment and those times in 1944, going into the Normandy invasion, going into that 1944 game. Uh, why was that game a game that, uh, to you, Rally the Nation? Well, let's maybe we can go back just a few years. Um, we can go back a couple years earlier. Uh, remember, we have the 1941 game that's played right before Pearl Harbor. So we're still at peace for the 41 game. Then the question comes up, do we continue to play football during the war? Does Army and Navy continue to play? Does it, and and if, if it does, they play each other. Where should we play the game? How, how much should we emphasize the game? So the, the decision was, okay, the academies are going to play football during the war. They're going to play each other. But we're going to have more low-key games. So the 1942 game was in Annapolis. And nobody that was lived beyond 10 miles from Annapolis could go. The idea is that we have to show that we're conserving rubber, we're conserving gasoline, we're doing this for this war effort. So it's a very small game. 1943, then, it's played up in Mikey Stadium. That's the last time it was played up in Mikey Stadium. Um, and, 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 and it was also a low-key affair. As a matter of fact, in that 43 game, the, the midshipmen were, were not permitted to go to the game. So what the Army did, what the cadets did, is they divided up regiments, okay? And one regiment was allowed to root for Army and yell, do Army cheers and Army songs and, you know, and, and just go all out for Army. But the other half, the other regiment, had the first regiment had to... Um, learn Navy cheers and root for Navy in the game. So, I mean, it, it, they, there must have been some divided loyalty going on. Okay, so you have small game in 1942, small game in 1943. Then we go into 1944. In 1944, we're coming up to the game, a couple weeks before the game, and we've got number one versus number two in a nation. These are number one ranked team Army and number two ranked team Navy facing each other in the last game of the season. It is going to be for the national championship, okay? Rarely do you get number one and number two playing each other before the what we do now uh, for the national championship. So that's exceptional. You've got the greatest players in America. Of the 11 All-Americans, and remember players went both ways back then, of the 11 All-Americans, seven of them played in the Army-Navy game. And it's such a big game. And, 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 America, and people are saying, we can't send it back to Annapolis before a small crowd. We have to play this as a big game. And it becomes a real political football. And there's also a sense that we're going to win the war. You know, that the war is winding down. You know, we've landed on the beaches of Normandy. Just about the time that the, 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 the cadets and the midshipmen and the players start to practice, we have D-Day. Um, 
And so D-Day is taking place. We've broken off of the beaches with Operation Cobra. We've had some success with Operation Market Garden, though not complete success. And, and we're moving towards Germany. This is before the Battle of the Bulge, remember. The Battle of the Bulge kind of puts a stop to everything. But there's a sense that let's return, let's return America to what America was. And nothing symbolized America more dramatically than this big Army-Navy game that engaged the entire nation. And it was just a wonderful affair. So in 1944, they decided, okay, we're playing the big game. It was a decision made by the president and the administration of FDR. We're playing the big game. We're going to play it in Baltimore. The cadets came down the Hudson, went into the Atlantic, and took their and took the cadets uh, to Baltimore, where they docked and marched to the stadium. It was a bitterly cold day, one versus two. It was it was a game that was listened to all over the world. We had soldiers uh, in they're they're in uh, Bastogne, close you know before the Battle of the Bulge, and they're listening to the game on short rave wave radios we have we have troops on the beaches of Leyte uh fighting in the philippines and it's early in the morning and they're listening to it they're listening to it on the boats at sea i mean here is a game being played by boys who are going to be men who are going to be soldiers and it's listened to by soldiers probably wishing they were boys again it's just so just touching and just so humbling to hear uh, so much of the backstory going into uh, these certain games, of course, given the backdrop uh, of war. And I know this sounds a little trite, but to hear that uh, regiments uh, at Army had to learn Navy chants, uh, that, that's that's blasphemous almost but of course you know the circumstances were <laughs> right uh, uh the circumstances were that uh, that was something that had to be the case uh to help morale if more anything else uh for uh the uh for the naval academy that uh, didn't have any uh traveling party uh there uh somebody, I, had, somebody had to cheer for <laughs> As a side, if, if I can tell you a story Go ahead, uh, yes. of an earlier Army-Navy game in uh, 42, I believe. There were two guys that played in Army in 42. Uh, one was a guy by the name of Robin Olds, who was an All-American. He was an outstanding football player. He was, an out he was outstanding at everything. He married a Hollywood starlet. He became a general. He, he became eventually the commandant of the Air Force Academy. Um, and so he was playing. And, and also playing in that game, a substitute player was a guy named Henry Merrick. And Henry Merrick and, and Robin Olds were best friends. They had prepped together before they had gone to West Point, and they were just absolutely devoted friends. One was a great lineman, Robin Olds, All-American. Uh, Robinette was not, was not that good. But unbeknownst to them, a couple years later, on D-Day, Robin Olds was given a job. He was a pilot, he, which you had the Army Air Corps at that time. He was given a job. Sent, he was sent over to France to fly above the beaches of Normandy to make sure that the Luftwaffe didn't strafe the beaches or go after uh, uh, the, the, the people landing on the beaches. Okay, so he's, he's flying over there. And this guy, if, if you look up a picture of Robin Olds, this is what a jet pilot, fighter pilot should look like. I mean, just tough as nails. He was an ace in World War II. 
He was also an ace in the Vietnam War. So, I mean, this, this is the a fighter pilot's fighter pilot. Okay, and he was just upset that there was no Luftwaffe. So he could see people being, you know, uh, Americans being killed on the beaches, but he couldn't do anything. He could see where the firing was coming from, but he was said he was told you can only fire at other enemy planes. So we have him buzzing back and forth about 500 feet. Unbeknownst to him, Henry Romerick, who graduated high in his class, and if you graduated high in your class, you became an engineer. You know, that's basically what your curriculum was at West Point. So he was an engineer, and he participated on the first wave of D-Day. And, and so engineers had a job to do, set up signposts, all sorts of engineering type of jobs. And when his boat landed and the hatch went down, a German machine gunner was just right on it. And just suddenly the air was filled with blood and pieces of skull flying back and forth. Um, and Romerick was just trying to get out. He and his his core, his group, were right behind the first, uh, the people in the front of the boat. And finally, Romerick gets a chance, and he jumps towards out of the boat into the surf, and he's hitting the chest. Okay, he's immediately, and he starts to go down. And he he, he said, you know, he wasn't in pain. He was probably in shock, and he he was going to die. You know, he was going to drown. And he saw the glint of his West Point ring. And he said, you know, God damn it, I'm not dying here. Not today. Okay, not now. And he goes to, he, he, he struggles to, up to, gets his head above water and starts to sink again. A Navy corpsman grabs him, hauls him to a beach, puts him behind uh, some sort of protection, not much of a protection, uh, shoots him full of morphine, okay, to, for, for the pain. And he gives them sulfa tablets, which this is before, you know, they didn't have penicillin. So this is uh, what they use to fight infection. And he says something to him like, look, take one of these for every, you know, every hour for the next 12 hours. Uh, and, and, and he goes off. The corpsman's off. He says, I'll be back. He never came back. The corpsman was killed. And Henry Romerick has this fistful of sulfa tablets. He, he takes all the sulfa tablets, figuring, you know, I'll, I'll find yeah, well, one big attempt to fight off inspection and he was on that beach i think it was about 27 hours okay uh, before the next day somebody saw him and said are you still alive and then they shipped him back to england to the hospital but here we have these two guys one of them had a bird's eye view of normandy of, of d-day the other one sitting looking at the surf seeing the troops come in had kind of a worm's eye view and here are two football players who participated in the day of days. Mm. Probably too long of a story, but I'm sorry. Oh, no. Do not be sorry for uh, that anecdote at all. Uh, that I actually was going to transition uh, into that, but you more than took care of that. Uh, just talking about some of the uh, participants in the Army-Navy game who also participated uh not just in world war ii but on uh d-day june 6 1944 uh as well uh randy roberts distinguished professor of history at purdue university joining us right now on the a lot of sports talk podcast uh you have gotten a chance to talk with a number of people and a number of people on in both academies who played in the game uh and also who uh served uh in war as well um during those uh, years, 44 and 45 and 46, uh, Army, the 
preeminent team uh, in college football, three national championships, and uh, someone like myself who you know started watching the Army Navy game back in the 1980s, even then knew about. Felix Doc Blanchard, Mr. Inside, Glenn Davis, Mr. Outside, uh, and Red Blake, uh, uh, the head coach, uh, as well, and how great those teams were. Uh, Just as someone who never got a chance to talk with anybody who had any experience uh, playing with uh, Doc Blanchard and Glenn Davis, who both won Heisman trophies, uh, did you get a a chance to uh, talk with uh, former teammates, former opponents? I just want to know their opinions and thoughts about uh, those two players specifically who are two of the uh, greatest players in college football history. Oh, yes, you know, there's so many people I talk to, and there's so very few of them left. Yeah. But I remember, you know, Bill Yeomans, uh, maybe is a name you've heard of, maybe yes. it isn't, but Bill Yeomans was, became kind of a famous coach at Houston. Uh, and, he, and he was a, a cadet at that time. He was on the Army Navy, uh, on the Army team. And, and he one time said, you know, there are words to describe how great of a player Doc Blanchard was. You know, there are words to describe it. There were no words. He said there are no words to describe how great Glenn Davis was. Glenn Davis was just blessed, and, and he, he said it himself, God gave me this. He was just blessed with extraordinary speed and the ability to uncannily cut backs. And, and he was just, you watch him, and you can still watch films. And I watched, of course, the 44 and 43 games uh, that were filmed. And some of the things that he could do was just uh, uh, amazing kind of like Lamar Jackson almost kind of abilities that in terms of quickness and speed and, and just competitiveness. He, he, he was a wonderful athlete. He was wonderful in track. He was a great baseball player. He loved basketball. He wasn't a particularly good basketball player. Uh, Glenn, Doc Blanchard, when Notre Dame scouted Doc Blanchard, uh, he, he, the, the guy, the scout wrote back to Notre Dame, I've just seen I, I've just seen Superman in person. He plays for Army. And wears number number thirty seven. I think that was Blanchard's off. Thirty five, I believe, right? Thirty five. Thirty five okay, and forty one. Yeah. Yeah, forty one. Uh, and he wears number thirty five. Yep. Uh, you know, those are you know two two of the great players from that year. And, you know, also interestingly enough, the class of forty four graduated. Uh, their official graduation took place in on June. On on uh, June sixth, nineteen uh, nineteen forty four. On so June sixth. On June sixth. Wow. So the commencement <laughs> speaker, and nobody knew about D Day yet. It was too early. You know, it was it had happened six hours before. Nobody knew it in America. And the commencement speaker gave a speech, and then he said, "Oh, by the way, we have just landed on the coast of France. You know, our march to Berlin has started. The place went wild. I mean, it just it just went crazy." That is just. Uh, you mentioned Bill Yeoman saying there are no words <laughs> to describe uh, Glenn yeah. Davis. I don't think there are too many words, at least that I have, to describe uh, that speech at Army on the day of of the Normandy invasion, uh, June 6, nineteen forty four. It's one of those days uh, that. Yeah. You just remember. Um, once again, Randy Roberts, uh, distinguished professor of history at Purdue University, uh, joining us and the author of the 2011 book, A Team for America, the Army-Navy Game uh, that Rallied a Nation. Uh, I guess one of the other days that many Americans remember, uh, 
November 22nd, 1963, uh, the day that uh, the president of the United States, uh, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. Uh, the Army-Navy game that year was scheduled for November 30th, just eight days after uh, the that infamous day uh, in Dallas. Um, there was pushback um, uh that a lot of sports teams and leagues felt uh, in terms of uh, stopping the leagues and uh, stopping play and not uh, playing immediately after uh, such a tragic uh, event. Uh, what were the discussions and what was the uh, kind of lead up to what the decision was and would be uh, about staging the Army-Navy game uh, in 1963, which eventually got uh, moved back about a week, week and a half, and um, if memory serves me correctly, was played on December 7th, uh, 1963, uh, which at that time would have been the 22-year uh, anniversary of the uh, attacks on Pearl Harbor. So uh, from that tragic event in on November 22nd, 1963, how did the evolution of figuring out whether to even play uh, the RV-Navy game, um, how did that evolve and uh, take me through uh, that time period uh, uh, not too long uh, after a tragic event uh, in our country? Well, you know, it is an unprecedented. The president had just been shot. Okay, well, who was the previous president who had been uh, killed by an assassin bolt? It, it would have been... 1901, right, with William McKinley. Uh, and they weren't playing a whole lot of football then, though they were playing some football, mostly in college. Uh, but, you know, what, what's the right thing to do? How do you honor John Kennedy? Uh, do you play a game and, and, and pretend like life goes on like as it is? Uh, and so there's a back and forth in the government. People were picking sides. But probably the deciding voice was Jackie Kennedy, who insisted that the game be played. Okay, she she felt very strongly that that her husband, JFK, would have wanted the game played. And so they decided to play the game. And I think it's the same as football during World War Two. It gives maybe a false sense of normality, but it still gives a sense of normality that football in in times of crisis becomes like a restoration it's 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 the america that we want to see it's the america that we hope that we will restore at some point you know in same as in 1944 we're still at war but we're already looking towards this restoration uh and this is what popular culture does you know in 1944 I think about at the same time as the game is being built up and playing, a movie came out, which is about restoration. Uh, and it, it's not about a war, but it's a movie about a World's Fair. Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland. And, and in that song, and in that movie, she sings a song towards the end uh, called, uh, what is it? Uh, it was just in my mind a second ago, but... Uh, have yourself a Merry Christmas, okay, a Merry Little Christmas. And, you know, this is her, her, her sister, little sister had just said, they're, the family's getting ready to move to New York. They don't want to move from St. Louis. And her little sister says, how is Santa Claus going to know where to find us? And then Judy Garland sings that song. And it's a song about next year, maybe we'll be together. 
Okay, if the, if the fates allow, we don't know if we're going to be together or not. Okay, but next year, maybe things will be better. Next year, maybe we'll have this restoration. Well, football is that glimmer of, of normal America. Uh, once again, uh, Randy Roberts, uh, distinguished, distinguished professor of history at Purdue University, uh, joining us right now um, on the Atlanta Sports Talk podcast. Um, a member of the Naval Academy uh, and its football team in 1963 uh, was Roger Staubach, who was the last uh, service academy player to uh, win the Heisman Trophy uh, in 1963 as well. Uh, Roger Staubach became the face of one of the marquee positions and high-profile positions in American sport, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. I think, you know, for those of a certain vintage, you think quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, center fielder for the New York Yankees, right? There's no higher profile uh, position uh, in American sports than those two positions. Maybe there are a couple other positions that I'm not thinking, but those two stand out more than any other. And Roger Staubach of the Naval Academy uh, won the Heisman Trophy, was a wonderful player, and then uh, became more of the face of the Dallas Cowboys than any player. Um, of course, Tom Landry would have something to say about that. But in terms of all the players, uh, through the history of the Dallas Cowboys, Roger Staubach might be and probably is the preeminent face uh, of the Dallas Cowboys. Um, I just want to know a little bit about Roger Staubach. You mentioned uh, growing up and watching uh, Roger Staubach uh, and his exploits, not just with the Cowboys, but at the Naval Academy as well. Just uh, any stories about, uh, did you ever get a chance to speak with and talk with uh, Roger Staubach and how his experience at the uh, Naval Academy ended up shaping his time uh, with the Dallas Cowboys and his ability to shape uh, one of the premier franchises in the history of sport? Uh, you know, I've never talked with uh, Roger Staubach. Uh, now, I did interview, I have talked with Raleigh Stitchway, who was the quarterback for the Army team. And, you know, they played against each other. And Stitchway, Stitchway was a great, he was an All-American, too. I mean, Stitchway was an outstanding player. And he, Roger won one of the games and he won the other game. But, you know, what I can remember about Staubach, you know, they call him Roger the Dodger, is he was kind of a Fran Tart. A better quarterback than Fran Tarkington, but he was a Fran Tarkington type of player in a sense that he he could run, he could dodge players, you know, he could he could throw the ball at the last second, but he wasn't a drop back into the pocket slow. He was you know he was just really fleet of foot. Hmm. And uh, just knowing about uh, the Cowboys during uh, those uh, wonderful years with Tom Landry and uh, the Doomsday defense and Drew Pearson and so many wonderful players that, you know, would take forever to just list uh, the great uh, Cowboy players of those times and knowing that uh, someone from the Service Academy became uh, the figure uh, on the football field, at least playing, uh, of a team that uh, has captured the imagination of so many uh, people, even to this day. Right, because the Dallas Cowboys are a brand, a brand name, and Roger had more to do with that than uh, any person uh, in the history uh, of the Dallas Cowboys. Um, I I think a lot of uh, football fans and historians or younger historians uh, know about uh, that know a little bit about the history or the importance of the Army Navy game, but maybe not about just the impact. Uh, uh, 
in a greater uh, societal view that the Army-Navy game has had. You just think about, or just Army and Navy, the service academies, I want to say, uh, and their football. Just even uh, instant replay, I think, uh, first debuted during an Army-Navy telecast. Uh, the, you know, the 40th President of the United States, uh, Ronald Reagan, a lot of people knew him or his nickname as the Gipper, and that goes back to uh, Newt Rockney's speech, the head coach of Notre Dame, and I believe that was during a game against Army, where he gave that speech, uh, the win one for uh, George Gipp, the win one for the Gipper speech. Uh, so just what is the legacy of the Army-Navy game? Uh, I just want to ask you, what do you think is the legacy of the Army-Navy game, not just in football, but just in society as well, from instant replay to the win one for the Gipper and knowing uh, uh, Ronald Reagan is the Gipper. Just the impact of the service academies in American society, let alone, of course, the obvious impact uh, and service that they uh, have provided for uh, civilians in uh, battling uh, overseas. Great question. Um, you know, service academies are special places. I taught at West Point. I'm a West Point fan, so uh, I should I should have worn some of the West Point. <laughs> And, and you know, it's a special place. And, you know, off the top of my head, I would say it's the purest college football game played in America. It's, it's, it's the last truly amateur football game. I mean, you watch, if you watch Alabama, if you watch the, you know, LSU, I'm an LSU Tiger fan, you know that the players that are playing in those games, the best players, the, the, as soon as the season's over, you know they're going to and they're going to have agents. They're going to go out early. They're they're not going to stay around for their senior year. Maybe they won't stay around for their junior year. That they are professional athletes in the making. They are professional athletes in everything but name only. Uh, when you watch that Army Navy game, these guys aren't going. A couple, a couple will end up in the NFL. You know, but not many. Not many. You know, these guys. They've gone to the academy. They will graduate from the academy. They will overwhelmingly put in their commitment. Many of them will stay in the services. For example, uh, Glenn, De or, excuse me, Doc Blanchard. Doc Blanchard spent his career in the Army. He never played professional football. Uh, you know, there, here's this great player. He retires as a colonel. Um, Glenn Davis played a little professional football, though he hurt himself and he wasn't the player that he used to be. But it, it's it's that purity of the game. Hi, mm. uh, as I said at the top, uh, we got a chance to cover a couple of Army Navy games. Uh, uh, at a lot of sports talk, 2017, uh, we first covered it, and it had been almost a decade plus um, that Army had not won the Commander in Chief's Trophy uh, and beaten Navy. Uh, period. Um, and in a winter wonderland, they were able to win. A last second field goal was missed. And then uh, the Army players are doing snow angels on the field. And I immediately just thought this was and is going to be uh, one of the just memorable games that I've ever gone to. And uh, I've, I've been to a lot of memorable games. Uh, how many uh, uh, Army Navy games have you been able to attend? And is there one that probably stands out or a couple that stand out uh, from the times that um, you attended games, if you did attend uh, Army well, Navy games? I, I, 
just as a couple, one when I was yeah. younger and one a little bit older. You know, one guy that I'd like to mention that yes. I interviewed, who was one of the best interviews I had, he was a wonderful guy. There were a few. Doug Kenna was unbelievable, who was the quarterback for the Army, 2014. But a guy named Bob Woods, who um, Bob went to, to Annapolis and played in the Army-Navy game at Annapolis uh, in the early 40s and then flunked out of Annapolis. And then he went to West Point. He enrolled at West Point, and he played in the game for West Point. So he's the only guy, and he just died a year or so ago. He's the only person that actually played in the Army-Navy game for both sides. Wow, that is <laughs> a piece of information that uh, this sports trivia junkie definitely uh, uh, will, will look into more and just know more about, about him, about Bob, just playing for both sides. It's uh, a, nicer man, a nicer man you would never meet in your life. I mean, he was, he, he was also a great trumpet player, and he was just a wonderful guy, just mm -hmm. a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, it has been more than a pleasure to talk with you just about – uh, this is almost seems like just the tip of the iceberg um, about uh, Army Navy and its place in history and the pageantry that is the events. We didn't even get into uh, just you know singing second, um, which I guess we'll get into. I know we're a little bit over time, but that's more than okay because that's another thing that just caught me uh, so much with both uh, sets of players uh, and cadets and midshipmen uh, facing uh, the bands and hearing uh, the alma mater of the team that didn't win first and then turning and then facing the band of the uh, alma mater, uh, uh, the band of the team that did win and just singing second is now just part of uh, the lexicon uh, in Army Navy. Uh, do you have any uh, history or background of either where it started or just your uh, kind of memories of, you know, knowing no, I, about... I, I, don't, I don't know when that started. Although in the, in the 43 game, there was a Mikey Stadium that we talked about a second ago. Yeah. I, I can still imagine the Army's band coming in and they came in playing anchors away before they switched to on brave old army team uh which is the army anthem wow uh, uh randy roberts distinguished professor of history at purdue university and again the author of a team for america the army navy game that rallied a nation which uh if my eyes aren't deceiving me is in view uh right behind you uh in that blue book uh just to your left ear if for those who are watching it uh as well uh a team for america uh the army navy game that rallied a nation uh again this almost feels like and probably is just the tip of the iceberg uh in being as comprehensive in talking about uh, everything that is Army Navy and the importance of the game to college football uh, and America and the world uh, as well. Just so many people listening uh, overseas, uh, listening to the game. Uh, Randy Roberts, it has been a pleasure uh, to talk with you and interview you about the history uh, of the Army Navy game and a lot of aspects uh, from it. And I definitely hope uh, uh, you enjoy the 121st edition uh, of the game uh, this week and watching it at a uh, Mikey Stadium again. Randy Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, definitely uh, continue to be well and stay safe. And I definitely hope uh, we get to catch up and do this again very soon. I hope so too. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. What a pleasure 
it was to talk to Randy Roberts and know about some of the things that I didn't know about certain players and certain teams uh, and events going on and surrounding players in the Army-Navy game and the Army-Navy game itself. Just absolutely awe-inspiring just to hear everything that uh, Mr. Roberts shared with us on episode 43 of the Allotted Sports Talk podcast. Again, Randy Roberts, thank you so very much. Make sure to follow us on social media. Uh, our Instagram is at a lot of sports talk. Our Twitter page is at a lost underscore official. You can follow us on Facebook. Just type a lots of sports talk. You can follow me personally uh, on Twitter at Koike underscore sport. Uh, so make sure to continue to follow us. We'll have coverage of as many games as we can cover given the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, Not going to lie, it has not been easy uh, being live and going to live events uh, with a lot of restrictions at a lot of these arenas. So uh, we've been doing our best covering games uh, and we will continue to do that as well. Uh, So again, just stay tuned to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast and alotofsportstalk.com. In closing, uh, I do want to uh, share a few words with you about a person who uh, was a mentor to me over the last eight years. His name uh, is Mike Shalin, a longtime sports reporter out on the East Coast, uh, worked for the New York Post, worked for the Boston Herald as a sports reporter, uh, worked for the Sports Exchange as well. And for the past few years, he also was the official scorer at Red Sox games at Fenway Park. Uh, Mike passed away last week, um, due to brain cancer and, uh, we got a chance to meet him in 2012 for the first time. And me personally, uh, at the NCAA tournament at TD garden in Boston. And as someone who did not cover a lot of games in Boston, didn't know a lot of people, let alone, Uh, A lot of sports reporters there. I knew them by face. I've heard them uh, on radio and on television, but I didn't know them. So uh, I pretty much was a fish out of water uh, going up into Boston uh, covering the event. And uh, the person who sat two seats over from me couldn't have been a nicer guy. uh, And his name was Mike. And uh, he was quick with a joke. And within just a few minutes of knowing him, he had me laughing. And a couple of minutes after that, we were talking about the block charge rule. He said he was a referee as well. And then he uh, talked to me about the game of basketball. And then you realized, I realized he was um, kind of a big deal. And I read him growing up in New York City. And uh, he was so quick with a joke. And he was someone who was so quick to invite you into his circle and make you feel comfortable. And he did that with me. A couple of times after meeting him on that weekend in 2012, March 2012, uh, we were friends for life. Um, He was on our podcast not too long afterwards as a guest. Um, His bio is on uh, still on our uh, A Lot of Sports Talk page. Um, Every time I went up to New England... Every time I went up to New England, whether to cover a Patriots game or to cover a Boston Celtics game or a college basketball or football game uh, in New England, um, when I got a chance to run into Mike, um, 
I was so happy. It was the highlight of my time up uh, in New England, even more so than the game itself. Mike made you feel like family. And that does not happen all the time in the press box, in press boxes across the country, especially um, as an African-American, as a black person in New England, and just in general being in press boxes. Mike was the best. And he told the greatest stories. He told the best stories. Uh, His story of working at at Lake Placid during the 1980 Winter Olympics and befriending Keith Olbermann and Sam Rosen. And he told me about how the three of them uh, invented a New York Rangers fight song or hockey song. And he would tell that story a couple of times and it just uh, left me uh, in a daze just wondering what it was like and imagining if I could have been in uh, that position and taken in all of that knowledge and uh, uh, all of that pageantry. And Mike was someone who, uh, the second you knew him, it felt like you knew him for life. And um, he'll always be alive in my heart, even though he's not with us physically. Um, It's hard to do this right now. Mike, Big Mike, thank you. Thank you so much for being one of my mentors when you didn't even know it. Thank you for being one of my best friends, even though you didn't know it. And um, covering sports is just not going to be the same without you. Thank you, Mike Shalen. Rest in peace.